You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. Genesis 35. Let's go ahead and stand as you turn there. Genesis 35. We're back in Genesis after a couple of weeks away from it. And Genesis 35 is after the slaughter of Shechem by Jacob's sons. And, and in Genesis 34 is where we were the last time we were here. And you know, it becomes apparent that a fresh start is needed. You ever get to that place in your life where you're like, okay, I've come through this and it didn't go very well. And, and now I'm to this point and I have two choices. I can either stay where I'm at or I can make a choice to have a fresh start. You ever been there before? Jacob is there. Jacob's at a point where he says, you know, things haven't gone very well. And, and I personally believe that Jacob is the reason it hasn't gone well. His choices as a father have brought his family to this point. And I want to read these first eight verses because God's given Jacob another chance. In verse 1, Genesis chapter 35, verse 1, it says, And God said unto Jacob, Arise, go to Bethel, and dwell there. And make there an altar unto God that appeared unto thee when thou fleddest from the face of Esau thy brother. God's intentions for Jacob were that he would go back to Bethel. Uh, the whole time that's where God has been leading Jacob to go back to. For ten years after leaving Laban's, um, Uncle Laban's home up in Paddan Aram. Um, God has been directing Jacob to go back to Bethel. He made a vow and we'll talk about that later. But it's taken Jacob a long time. Verse 2, then Jacob said unto his household and to all that were with him, this is a good lesson for us dads, put away the strange gods that are among you and be clean and change your garments and let us arise and go up to Bethel and I will make there an altar unto God who answered me in the day of my distress and was with me in the way which I went. He takes charge for his family and says, we're going to Bethel. And they gave unto Jacob all the strange gods which were in their hand and all their earrings which were in their ears. And Jacob hid them under the oak which was by Shechem. And they journeyed and the terror of God was upon the cities that were round about them and they did not pursue after the sons of Jacob. So Jacob came to Luz which is in the land of Canaan that is Bethel and he and all the people that were with him and he built there an altar and called the place El Bethel, or El Bethel, where, because there God appeared unto him when he fled from the face of his brother. But Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried beneath Bethel under an oak, and the name of it was called Alan Bacchus. But I want to focus, though, on this call of God to Jacob to leave where he is and go back to where he's supposed to be. See, the way that I would describe this is that Jacob is in a spiritual slump. All of us have been there before. You know, you, you might say, well, you know, my, I'm a mature Christian. I'm pretty consistent. But you can't tell me that even as a child of God, as a Christian, there haven't been seasons in your life where you come to a slump. You go through a season when it seems like you just can't get motivated. You, you can't get excited. You can't seem to do anything right. In sports, it's called a slump. 
And Jacob is going through a spiritual slump. And at the end of it, you can do one of two things. Or in the middle of it, I should say, you can do one of two things. You can keep going the same direction or you can make a choice to get out of it. And today my message is this, don't be defined by the slump. Because a lot of people in the middle of the slump, they think that's my label. That's who I am. Now, I'm here to tell you this morning, that slump is a season, but it doesn't have to define you. And this morning, we'll see that. Don't be defined by the slump. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the reading of it. Bless it, Lord, and help us to be open to whatever message you have for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You can be seated. It was April of 2019, there's a, and a professional baseball player named Chris Davis made history for all the wrong reasons. Davis was known as a power hitter, and he actually played for the Baltimore Orioles. He led the major leagues in, in home runs twice and was rewarded in 2016 with a seven-year contract worth $161 million. So, I mean, that's a lot of money. Over, over $20 million a year, and for perspective, that's close to what we're going to pay our interns this summer. So, <laughs> Abishua and Josh are interns down here from Heartland Baptist Bible College. Great to have you guys, by the way. And they're making slightly less than $20 million a, a year. They're going to be paying attention to this message now, though. I'm thankful <laughs> for that. You know, the year after Chris Davis got that contract extension, his production began to tank. He was already known as the kind of hitter that would only either hit a home run or a strikeout. Um, but he was effective in that he hit so many home runs and drove in so many runs that his strikeouts and batting average weren't so much a detriment. But in, but in 2016 and, and after, after he got his contract, he was striking out at a record pace. In 2018, he actually set a record for the worst batting average in league history for a player that qualified for the batting title. But the records didn't end there. His most infamous record came while finishing hitless in his last 21 at-bats in 2018. And then when the season began in 2019, he went his first 33 at-bats in 2019 without getting a hit. So you have this span of 54 straight at-bats without getting a hit at all. It's a major league record for the longest hitless streak. And if he grew up dreaming of seeing his name in the record books, I don't think that's what he had in mind. Because he broke the all-time record for the longest hitless streak. And many, most historians, um, baseball historians, would agree that Chris Davis had the worst slump in baseball history. And he got paid millions of dollars to do it. I mean, in a, in a little bit, we're going to see, though, something that happened to Chris Davis that helped him get out of the slump. And I don't want to give it away too soon, so you've got to stick around for the ending. Um, for now, though, we must acknowledge, though, that slumps are not confined to the baseball diamond. You can call it what you want, but we can go through slumps in life. And it, it seems like everything we do is a fail. We can't get anything right. We don't get excited about much at all. Everything is hard. You might call it a rut. You've done the same thing so many times that you've carved a path that you just can't seem to get out of. And if you've ever had a dog, then some dogs do this in your backyard. 
Well, they do a lot of things in your backyard, but they do this in your backyard where they, they have these certain paths that they take. And they, they run this, I don't know why, I mean, dogs are just weird, aren't they? But they, they, they form this path in your backyard and they start to wear the grass away. And after a while, they run the same path the whole time and, and all the grass is worn away and the dirt is real hard. You've probably seen that in backyards before. Uh, or just recently, right out the, uh, the side over here, this, uh, the north side of the building, we had these giant ruts in our yard because we just replaced the roof. And, and, and the wind of South Dakota is trying to do all it, all it can to take the roof right back off after we replaced it. But we replaced the roof and they brought this massive lift in to lift the shingles up onto the roof. And if you notice, the last few weeks he's been, there's been these giant ruts in the yard over here. I mean massive things because this lift was so big yesterday the trustees were out there tilling the ground up and and trying to smooth it over because the ruts had been in there long enough that the ground was hard and you were it wasn't just going to go away you had to do something about it and you had to smooth it out let's be honest that some of us in our life we, we have spiritual ruts we're in a spiritual slump you've been walking on that path so long that the trail is worn and it's familiar but the ground is hard and there's nothing new and there's nothing exciting and and no matter what you just can't seem to step off the path you're on and, and start a new path the ruts the ruts are deep the ground is hard there's something drastic that has to be done if you're going to reshape it because you're in a slump and when it comes to spiritual things, you're striking out over and over again. Now, a, a slump doesn't mean that you, don't look, that you don't look the part. You know, you can go through a slump and nobody can tell it. It doesn't mean that you're not going to church, although that may be the case and, it, and that may need to get fixed. But it might mean that you're going to church, but church isn't what it used to be. Your Bible reading feels empty. Your prayers are hitting the ceiling. You've lost your first love. Like Jesus said in the book of Revelation, you know, we had our first outreach yesterday and door knocking. We had a good group show up. I wish we had more show up, but maybe you didn't come because you're just not excited about reaching others. And that's your reason. You know you should be, but it's just not there. I, I get it. I've, I mean, I've been in those seasons. Um, you're in a slump. That's where Jacob was. See, God had called him to return to his homeland uh, and, uh, and specifically to go to Bethel, but he had settled in Shechem instead of going to Bethel where he was supposed to be. And God had met him some 30 years at this place called Bethel and Jacob had vowed to return to, and, and go back there, and, but he clearly stopped somewhere he wasn't supposed to be and he started slumping. After buying a piece of land in Shechem, then, then we know in Genesis 34, his daughter Dinah ha had been assaulted. She had been raped by, by Shechem, and, and, and Jacob responded very passively. If you read chapter 34, you're thinking, well, why, isn't, why isn't he taking charge here? In fact, though, in chapter 34, after the assault of his daughter, um, Shechem had come to him, Hamor and Shechem, and they had proposed this, this plan, to let's make a super tribe. We'll make a super team and, and we'll, we'll have this covenant together and we'll, you know, we'll let you marry our daughters and sons and, and, and we'll kind of join forces and, 
and we're going to make this tribe that no one's going to be able to touch. We'll have lots of money. We'll have lots of wealth. We'll have lots of power. And you know, Jacob should have been thinking, these are the guys that just took advantage of my daughter. No way. But instead, he's kind of like, hmm, he's thinking about this. His sons have to step in and say, you know, they were offended on their sister's behalf, and, and, except they took it too far. Levi, Levi and Simeon, rather than, you know, deal with it justly, um, they, they tricked the Shechemites and went into Shechem and, and slaughtered all the males and took the, the women and the children captive. It was a disaster. It was, a, it was bad news all around. It was a terrible uh, ordeal for Jacob and his, and his family. And, and I believe it's clear that Jacob put his family in that position because he stopped moving. He was in a rut. He was in a slump. He stopped where he should going from where he should have gone. And, and he found himself in a slump. When we get to chapter 35, it's time to get out of the slump. And Jacob is afraid of Canaanite retaliation. You have to think that the Shechemites, I mean, they had friends. And, and after Levi and Simeon had taken out this whole village, you have to think that in back of Jacob's mind is, is the Canaanites are going to come after us. We better get out of here. He felt compelled to leave, but he made a mistake that many of us make. And this is interesting. See, Shechem was only 30 miles away from Bethel. Listen, Jacob could have returned at any time, but he chose to stay in a slump. And that's what happens to many of us. See, we appear to be close to where God wants us. We're not really that far away, and we look the part, and we say the right things, and we do the spiritual things people expect. We're close, but we really couldn't be further away. We draw nigh to God with our mouth, with our lips, but our hearts are far from God. Maybe that describes your slump. See, here's another point to be made from Jacob. Sometimes it takes a major failure to get us back on track. And I wish this wasn't the case, friends. I wish it wasn't the case, but it is. Jacob should have had the resolve to go back to Bethel without the Shechemite disaster, but he didn't. And instead, his spiritual slump cost him much when it didn't have to. So this is his background. See, listen, you've got a man who seemed close to God, but he wasn't. And he had to experience a major disaster to get out of the slump. And for some in here this morning, you seem close to God, but you're not. So what's it going to take to motivate you to get out? See, what I'm trying to do today is prevent you from having to go through the disaster to get out of the slump. Trying to prevent you from having to go through the down point, the downsides and the, the downtime and the low points and the ruts and, and the bad things that are going to happen to somebody that's in a rut. Listen, I'm trying to prevent you from having to go through that before you get out of your slump. And I'm telling you this morning, it's possible. You can get out of the slump before disaster strikes because Jacob, he didn't take any steps in chapter 35. He couldn't have taken back in chapter 33. So what are you going to have to do to break your slump? What's it going to take? Well, it's a few things. Number one, you're going to have to get to the right place. You're going to have to get to the right place. Look at verse 1. And God said unto Jacob, Arise, go to Bethel, and dwell there. You know what God is saying? God's saying, you're in trouble, Jacob, and it's time to get to the right place. You know what the right place is, Jacob, he says? Jacob, the right place is Bethel. You know what Bethel means? Bethel means house of God. 
See, Bethel was the place Jacob stopped about 30 years before after he was fleeing his home, uh, fleeing from Esau's face. He stopped one night and he saw these angels ascending and descending and they're coming back and forth and they're bringing messages to and from heaven and he's in awe of what he sees so he, he stops there this place and, and he says, surely, the, basically the presence of the Lord is in this place. He builds an altar, he meets with God, and it's called, that place is called Bethel. And, and Jacob says, this is where God has met with me. And I, I vow, God, if you will bring me back to this place, whatever I come back with, I'm going to give you a tenth of it. I'm going to come back and I'm going to tithe. I'm going to give you a tenth of it. And you say, well, there's the preacher always talking about tithe at church. Well, no, I'm not, not even just like that. But, he, you know, Jacob had built an altar and he'd worship that night. He poured out the oil that he had on the altar. And you know that cost him something because the Bible says all he had with him was a staff. He didn't have much else. So it's not like he had a lot to offer that, that night, but he did. Because when God meets with you, there's no worship and no sacrifice that you're not willing to, to, to do for God. Because heaven's met with you. Listen, the idea of Bethel, the house of God, is that this is a place where God dwells on earth. This is a place where God meets people. Bethel is a place where God is accessible. It's an access point. If you've ever gone kayaking along the Big Sioux River, then our kids like to do that. And, and you know, well, the last couple summers, you haven't had enough water to kayak in the Big Sioux River. But there's these access points. You know, there's a place where you can, you can get your kayak in the river and then we'll pick them up at a different place. And they enjoy doing that. Well, you have to find an access point. You know, that's what Bethel is. Bethel is a place where you can have access to God. It's a place where God, the God of heaven says, I will meet you there. I will meet sinners there. Right. You know, the great thing about God and access is you can access God anywhere. In John 4, Jesus told the woman at the well, he says, this mountain, that mountain, doesn't really matter. I'll, I'll meet you anywhere as long as I'm just looking for worshipers. You know, you can access God while you're driving down the road and praying in your car. And you can access God at work while you're quoting scripture to yourself. And you can access God in the mountains when you see the, the power and the majesty and the beauty. And you're reminded of God's power and faithfulness. You can access God anywhere. Aren't you thankful for that? I am too. But listen, just because you can pray anywhere, that doesn't mean that God no longer cares about the house of God. There are places that matter to God where God meets with his people and he speaks to people and he gives access to himself. There are places, uh, you know, the Bible says that the church is the house of God, the pillar and ground of the truth. The New Testament church, God's plan for this age is the local New Testament church. And listen, you can access God anywhere, and you can have pray anywhere, you can have a relationship anywhere, but God's plan for the life of every man, woman, and child is to grow in and contribute to a local church body. Where's the right place to break out of a slump? Church. You want to get out of the rut you're in? Church is a good place to do it. You say, well, church is where my rut is. Hey, well, you're not going to get out of the rut by getting out of church. And I think Eastside Baptist Church is a pretty good place to get out of a rut. 
Now, I'm a little biased, of course. But listen, you know, find a biblical church. Find a local New Testament church. Read the New Testament and try to define what a church ought to look like based on what you see in the New Testament. And then just plug in at that place. Say, I want God to speak to me. I want God to work in me. I need to get out of my slump. I'm going to go to an institution where there's growth and there's edification and there's teaching and there's worship and there's preaching and there's good solid music where they're spreading the gospel. That's what a local church looks like. And Ephesians 5 says that Christ loved the church so much that he died for the church. So don't tell me it's not important. It matters. Plug in, commit, contribute. That's God's plan. God's house is an access point to God. Listen, there are a lot of voices out there. What voice of truth consistently speaks into your life? Are you going to hear that on television? Say, well, you know, Fox News, I think, you know. No, you're not going to hear the voice of truth on Fox News. You know, and even though it's, it's now acceptable to be back on Twitter, if you're a God-fearing Christian, that's sarcasm, by the way, you're not going to hear a lot of biblical truth on Twitter. You're not going to hear these voices of truth in the media. You're not going to hear it on social media. You're not going to hear it from friends that, that don't care about the Lord or from co-workers who don't go to church. Listen, those, it's not like all those things are bad things, um, but you need, those things are okay and balanced, but you need consistent input from God's word in your life. You need a voice of truth to counter all the other voices that are coming at you all week. You know what you need to do if you want to get out of your slump? You need to get to the right place. And according to this, Bethel means house of God. God says, you want to get out of a slump, get to the house of God. You want to get out of a slump, number two, prioritize the right relationship. Prioritize the right relationship. God said unto Jacob, arise, verse one, go to Bethel and dwell there and make there an altar unto God. He tells Jacob very clearly, make there an altar. You know, his first time at Bethel, Jacob had very little. He had a staff, that's it. He was on the run. Now he has an incredible amount of wealth. He has this huge flock. And you know what God reminds him of? God says, now it's time for you to get back to Bethel and I want you to build a formal altar. And by my study, this is the only time that I can see that God uh, commands somebody to build an altar. Which, by the way, is a good point to be made. And that you should, if God's ever done anything good for you in your life, no one should have to tell you to read your Bible. You should say, you know what, I want to read my Bible because look at what God has done for me. In Sunday school, we were talking about motivations for serving. And we were talking about how, you know why you should, why you should serve God? You should be, serve God because you're thankful for all God's done for you in your life. You should serve God because God's forgiven you of your sins. You should serve God because Jesus Christ serves us. And you should serve God because you love people. So we have got, we've got a lot of reasons to serve God. You know, there should be not a lot of times in the Old Testament where God had to say, go build an altar, have a relationship with me. Well, this time he does. He says, Jacob, I want you to go back to Bethel and I want you to build an altar. Remember, you made a vow. You told me you'd bring back a tenth of all that you have. Well, now Jacob's looking around at his flocks and he's like, wow, that's a lot of sheep. You know, God is about to find out how serious Jacob was about his vow. 
It was one thing for Jacob to say, I'll bring you a tenth when he had nothing. But now he has got all kinds of stuff. And we're about to find out how serious he is if Jacob is really serious about building an altar. And God's reminding Jacob that everything he's doing, though, everything that Jacob is doing is about his relationship with God. See, the relationship that matters the most is the one that you have with God. And here, here's the reason we get in a rut sometimes is because we think that everything we're doing is about the activity we're involved in. And listen, I love church and I love being here, but church isn't about church. Church is about God. Your life should be about your relationship with God. That's why in a little bit, Jacob calls the altar that he builds there in Bethel, he calls it El Bethel, which literally means the God of the house of God. And what Jacob was saying was that everything I'm doing is not about the place. It's not necessarily uh, about the activity. It's about the person. It's about the relationship that I have with God. That is what this is all about. It's about the person. The one that makes all of this matter is God. Listen, we have a beautiful building and I'm thankful for it. And in my estimation, a building like this, it makes a statement about the God we serve. I'm thankful. But if God didn't meet with us here on Sundays, we're just having a social club. If God doesn't meet with us on Sundays, we're just showing up and kind of wasting time. There's a lot, especially on a day like this, you're all probably thinking there's a lot of other things I'd like to be doing outside. You know, I mean, I want to be outside doing something. And, And listen, if God doesn't meet with us, what's the point of being here? Listen, that's why our focus when we meet, it's not about a program, it's about a person. If we meet together and he's not present, it's a social club. That's why our focus is on him. That's why when we sing those hymns, they're full of truth about God. It's not just about our emotions. You know, preaching takes place when we gather because we we want to convey truth about God. That's why whenever we gather, we try to create an environment that's distraction-free because we want it to be about God. You know, and I love, I love children, but we have a nursery because until children get to be a certain age, they're not able to sit and, and, and listen and soak in what's being preached. And, and, and a lot of times then a, a child can become a distraction to the message that God is trying to give us. And listen, I know that these things aren't popular. I get it. Um, we're trying to encourage an environment in which cell phones get put away. I know that's not popular. We're trying to create an environment in which we keep min- a movement to a minimum so, so that when people get in their seat, they stay in their seat so that they can listen because every time you get up, it distracts somebody from listening and they might miss the one sentence that they needed to hear that God wanted to speak to them through. And you say, boy, that's not real popular. That's a pretty tight environment. And I know it is. I know it is. Listen, it'd be a lot more popular for us to do things differently. But when our focus is we're trying our very best to focus on our relationship with God and keep the focus on him alone. When you're thinking that that's the high calling we're trying to strive for, then all of those other things suddenly don't seem as important. And we're willing to go to some serious lengths because of who it's about. And I I know it's not popular, but you know, think about it. There are places in our culture um, that I've, I've heard have no problem telling you to put your cell phones away. You know, you go to the theater, from what I hear, you go to a theater, and they are very, very conscious of putting your phones away. And you know, here's the thing, the interesting thing about that is, they're telling you to do that in a place where it's Hollywood's message. 
I mean, and Hollywood's message isn't worth listening to, in my opinion. So Hollywood says our message is important enough to us that you need to put your phone away and you need to sit down and don't move around. Well, listen, we're in an environment here where we're trying to hear God's message. And I know it can't always be this way. I, I know that there will be exceptions to this and there will be times. I'm not saying yet that you don't get up and move even if there's an emergency. I mean, sometimes you've got to get up and move. I understand that. We, we, we have these expectations, but we also extend grace. But if we're all striving for the same thing, that we want to keep this environment about God, about his message, then I hope that you'll see that these aren't unreasonable things to ask because we're trying to make this all about him. Every service. So that's on a church level. Our relationship with God, it's the most relationship, most important relationship you're ever going to have. It happens personally to to compare the time that you spend on other relationships and other activities and and all the other things, work and all of those, compare that to your relationship with God this week. If we're looking at a pie chart of your life, the minutes spent, work, social media, hanging out, television, what sliver size goes to your relationship, your walk with God. How big a piece of pie would you have if the piece of pie you got was directly connected to the time that you spent with God? You start thinking about those things and you start to realize, man, we may not be doing as good as we thought we were in our walk with God, who it's supposed to be all about. When God told Jacob to build an altar, he's saying, I'm your most important priority. I'm your most important relationship. You can have all those other things right, but if you're missing the person, you really don't have anything. By the way, looking around the room in a room in a group this size, and I happen to believe that probably there's somebody in this room and your, your relationship with God has never begun. Can I tell you this? The most important relationship, the most important decision, the most important choice you'll ever make is to have a relationship with Jesus Christ through salvation. And every person on this planet at some point has to come to terms with the fact that they are a sinner before God who has broken his law. And as a result of breaking God's law, you deserve eternal consequences separated from God in a place called hell. That's what the Bible says. And you, if you on your own tried to pay for those sins, you'd never be able to. But God sent his son, Jesus Christ, on a cross. He died, he was buried, and he rose again, proving he has power and victory over your sin. And he makes that offer of salvation. I don't care what other churches around here might say, that it's only for certain people. No, it's God so loved the world. Whosoever believeth. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And this morning, if you will make the choice to make Jesus Christ your Savior, he'll save you from your sins and take you to heaven for eternity forever. Today's the day. If if your life is to be all about your relationship with God and you never begin that relationship, I'm praying that you will today. You want to break out of your slump? Go to the right place, the house of God. Prioritize the right relationship. It's your walk with God. But number three, you want to break out of your slump, you're going to have to get rid of the wrong influences. Look at verse two. 
Then Jacob said unto his household and to all that were with him, Put away the strange gods that are among you and be clean and change your garments. And let us arise and go up to Bethel and I will make there an altar unto God who answered me in the day of my distress and was with me in the way which I went. Jacob, God says, okay, it's time to get up, rise up, get clean, change your garments. You know, this is such an important part, uh, an important step in breaking free and getting out of the rut is that you're going to have to disconnect. A few, a couple months ago, um, Aaron and I, I was preaching down in Tampa, Florida. And, and by the way, Tampa, Florida in January is a great place to be. So we, we went to this place and, and, and the pastor there said, you guys want to go see some dolphins? And I was like, well, I mean, we see those in South Dakota all the time. But yeah, I guess we can. Yeah, let's go. So we get to the place and there, there's a double-decker ship. You can sit down on the inside or you can sit up on top and and it can seat a couple hundred people. It's a pretty good size um, viewing ship. And so we, we, you know, of course, we don't want to be inside. We want to be up top. So we have the sun and we have the views. And we were sitting there on the boat and, and I was, and they were talking about, you know, it's, they were giving us all the safety instructions and all those things. And we were about to take off. And I looked down and there's this massive rope. And that rope, one part of the rope, one end was connected to the ship. And the other end was, had this giant loop on it and it was connected to this large anchor looking thing that was sitting on the dock. And, and the loop was around that, that, the dock there. And, and I was thinking, you know, I sure hope, because they're talking about leaving and the, the engines were starting to fire up and I was like, well, I really, I sure hope somebody remembers the rope or this is going to be a short dolphin tour. So sure enough, when it was time to go, some guy went over there and he grabbed the rope and, and they did something with it and got, it, got rid of it and then we took off. But I was thinking, you know, it, we all could have paid for dolphin tickets. We could have been ready and anticipating and ready to take a step. But if we hadn't disconnected from the dock, we would have never gotten to see dolphins. You know, here's the truth. There, God wants you to break out of your slump, but you're connected to some influences in your life that are keeping you at the dock. God wants you to go out into the bay and he wants you to see the dolphins. And by the way, we got to see some awesome things. We saw this pod of dolphins that day and there were the mama dolphins and the babies and they were swimming like in sync, coming in and out of the water. And it was the coolest thing. I mean, we were enjoying it. I was like, I know it's, we see it in South Dakota all the time, but it was cool to see it in Tampa. You know, these dolphins, these pods of dolphins, it was a nursery is what it was. We would have never seen that if we'd have stayed at the dock. But listen, God wants you to break out of your slump and he wants, you to, he wants you to move forward and he wants you to get to the right place and he wants you to prioritize the right relationship. But you'll never be able to do any of that if you're unwilling to disconnect from the things that are holding you back. And there are people in your life and there are activities in your life and there's sin in your life and it's keeping you from moving forward. God says to Jacob, put away the strange gods. You know, it's interesting. It was 10 years before this that, that they had escaped Uncle Laban. And remember when he came looking for the idols that they had stolen and Rachel put them in the tent and, and she had covered them up and was sitting on top of them. And it, 10 years later, they're still dealing with false idols. Because when they should have left those things in the wilderness, they kept them and now they're still causing problems. There were strings that needed to be cut and they never cut them and here they are still 10 years later. 
I, I wouldn't be surprised if by raiding Shechem, they had gathered some more of these idols, these false gods. But these influences were keeping them from moving forward. And Jacob knew until they get rid of the wrong things, they'll never get out of the slump. And there are things in all of our lives that are competing for God's attention. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised, and I haven't looked over there. I wouldn't be surprised today if across the highway there's hundreds of families watching baseball. And I'm not opposed to baseball. I use baseball as the opening illustration. But I am opposed to baseball on Sundays. Because the Lord's Day is reserved for the Lord. And there are countless families in our culture and they're being held back because they've got activities on Sunday that are keeping them out of God's house on the Lord's Day. And I'm all about young people getting a job and working and learning a good work ethic. But parents, if your child, if your teenager comes home and says, Mom, they want me to work on Sundays. Dad, they want me to work on Wednesday nights. Then parents, you're going to have to intervene and say, no, we're going to be in church and that job is secondary because that will keep your child from growing in the Lord if you let him work a job when church is going on if there's something in your life personally that you're choosing to do instead of spending time with God and in his word and on your knees in prayer it may be time to put away that strange God and you say well those are pretty strong words no listen anything that competes for God's attention in your life is an idol it's a strange God it's a God that doesn't need to be there and there should be nothing in your list of priorities that competes with God as being the most important Jacob says, be clean, change your garments. Be clean and change your garments. This is a picture of, of ceremonial cleansing, but if you're going to go into the presence of God, you got to be clean first. It's like when the kids come from outside, they've been playing, especially when it's hot in the summertime. They come in and you're like, man, you kids smell like outside. I don't know what outside smells like, I just know I don't like it. You know, it's time to change your clothes. You need to take a shower. You know, uh, the truth is, a lot of us, we come to God and, and we think we can just walk right up to him, but we smell like outside. And we've got these things in our life. We think, well, you know, I can go to God anytime. Well, yes, you can go to God anytime. He's accessible. But if there's sin in your life, you better clean, clean that, ask him to forgive you before you approach a holy God. And you better be willing to get rid of some things in your life that are impure before you can approach a holy God. Because I don't want to go to God smelling like outside. He's a holy God and he accepts us. But listen, he gives you the opportunity to be cleansed before you come to him. He doesn't say, okay, well, now that you're dirty, you can't approach me. No, he says, I'll send my son to forgive your sins so that you can approach me and we can be on a level of holiness here. But, it, but sometimes it's just time to get clean. It's time to, to get rid of those things, the sin in our life that has to be dealt with before we come to God. And you know what, Jacob, it's interesting. He says, change your garments. See, I'm sure it was ceremonial for them, but for us, it's a picture. See, when you decide to get rid of those wrong influences, guess what? It's going to be visible to other people. A lot of, In Christian culture today, everyone says, you know, I, you know I, can, I can follow God, but I can have these things in my life. Um, and, and, and it doesn't necessarily have to change the way I live. I don't believe that at all. I believe if you're a disciple of Christ, we were just talking about this in Sunday school, if you're a disciple of Christ, Jesus, you know, that, you know the metaphor he uses when it comes to discipleship in Luke 9? He uses the metaphor of plowing. And I don't know if you've ever plowed. I, I haven't. I mean, I've tilled a garden. 
So we'll use that as the example. But you know what? Tilling a garden, it's dirty work. Tilling a garden, it'll make you sweat. Tilling a garden is going to leave you dirty and exhausted and sweaty and weary. That's what it does. And that's what Jesus says is discipleship. So listen, there, you've got a picture of discipleship in modern churches today. that says discipleship is you come dress, you know, however you want. Enjoy some coffee and some air conditioning. And, you know, we'll just have a good time together. Um, but Monday through Saturday, if there's no change seen in your life, that's not the kind of discipleship Jesus was talking about. There should be something different in our lives as a result of who we follow. Discipleship should make a difference. What's happening on the inside is going to be visible on the outside. And listen, the heart matters the most, but what's in the heart is going to show up in how we live. Look at verse 4. And they gave, this is his family, they gave unto Jacob all the strange gods which were in their hand and all their earrings which were in their ears. And Jacob hid them under the oak, which was by Shechem. You know what? When Jacob stood up and said, it's time to go to Bethel, his family, you know what? They, they, they just saw the mess in Shechem. And they're like, man, we need to make a change. And when Jacob stood up and said, it's time to get rid of those things that are holding us back, they said, here you go. Whatever it takes, dad. Whatever it takes, husband. Whatever it takes, Jacob. And this is the good lesson for us dads in here. Dads, there are going to be some times where you have to make some hard calls if you want to move forward and get your family out of a rut. But I'm telling you, God will bless you if you're willing to take that stand. Are there some wrong influences in your life that you need to be cut off? Somebody at work, a relationship online, sin in your life, a person, an activity. You cannot get to the right place and you can't prioritize the right relationship until you get rid of the wrong influences. Untie yourself from the dock. Look at verse 5. And they journeyed, and the terror of God was upon the cities that were round about them, and they did not pursue after the sons of Jacob. You know what I love about that verse? A, a few different messages, I've, I've really emphasized this truth, that when you get with God's program, you get God's protection. And there we have it one more time. Is, I mean, they had just wiped out Shechem, and honestly, the Canaanites would have been justified to come and wipe them out. But God protected them because Jacob started moving toward Bethel again. God will, dads, you think that your family's going to fall apart if you start making some hard decisions? No, God will start blessing your family when you're moving in the right direction. Verse 6. So Jacob came. Okay, you know what that means? Jacob didn't delay, he did it. He simply obeyed. So listen, why stay in a slump? Your relationship with God is at stake and I know it feels overwhelming and maybe you've been in a slump for a while and you're thinking I'm too far gone. It's too long of a process. He won't receive me. Does God know what I've done? And I'm telling you this, he does know what you've done. He has seen all of it. But I want you to remember who we're talking about in this passage right here. This is Jacob and his family and they spent years worshiping false idols they just got done wiping out a village of people unjustly. And God still says, no, listen, you can still come to Bethel. You can still have a walk with me. I'll still forgive you. You can still get out of your slump. You just need to take the right steps. This is a God of second and third and fourth and fifth chances. And all he's looking for us is to make the decision to take the step. God, I listen, I know, I know. Maybe you've done some things that you don't want anybody to know about. God knows about them, and he still loves you. And he's still this morning telling you, go to Bethel and build an altar. He let him return. 
Why? Well, because God's always only one choice away. One choice away. What's the choice? God, I'm in a slump and I want to get out. Father, I know there are some steps I need to take, but if you'll give me strength and grace, I'll do it. I'll make your house a priority. I'll make my walk with you a priority. I'll be willing to get rid of those influences that are holding me out. That's the choice you have to make to get out of a slump. There are some people in a slump right now. And right now you're in a slump. But in just a few minutes, you have an opportunity to make a choice. And listen, you can take that first step and get out. You just have to make a choice. People right now in this room and you're unsaved and you don't know if you died today, if you'd spend eternity in heaven or not. And in just a few minutes, you can be on your way to heaven for eternity. It simply means you responding to God's word and making a choice. God's one choice away. Chris Davis, back to baseball. You know, Chris Davis um, in the middle of his slump, well, toward the end of his slump, he got a letter from a nine-year-old Red Sox fan, okay? Now, he played for the Orioles, and the Red Sox and the Orioles, I mean, they're not supposed to be friends. But this little nine-year-old boy named Henry Frasca, he's watching Chris Davis toil through this slump, nine years old, and he's like the world's biggest Red Sox fan. So he decides to write a letter to Chris Davis and encourage Chris Davis, who doesn't even play for his team. So he sends this letter, Henry Frasca does, and, and I listened to it, but I don't have the transcript. I do have just one part, though, that I want to read to you. Here's what Henry Frasca, part of his letter says this. There are two things I want you to know. It's a nine-year-old to a professional baseball player. Two things I want you to know. First, the way you play baseball has nothing to do with how good a person you are. But also, you've been so good. You've played in the MLB, exclamation point, Major League Baseball. You're great. Don't give up. We're rooting for you. You know, I love the insight because a nine-year-old said, especially the first part, the way you play baseball has nothing to do with how good a person you are. You know what he was saying? He was saying that Chris Davis's performance on the field doesn't have to define who he is. In other words, a slump doesn't have to define you. See, that day in Boston, literally, true story. That day in Boston, Chris Davis broke out of his slump in a big way, thanks to the kind words of Henry Frasca. He, went three for, he got three hits, had four RBIs, and the Orioles beat the Red Sox. See, it's not always going to be that clean. But let me just tell you this, friend, a spiritual slump doesn't have to define you. You don't have to be, your whole life doesn't have to be defined by where you are in this moment right here. You know what defines you? How you respond to God's letter. Because just like that little nine-year-old boy, God's written us a letter. And you know what he says? Get up, go to my house, prioritize your relationship with me. Let go of the things that are holding you back. Cut ties with those things. Get off the dock. Don't give up. I'm rooting for you. That's what God says. So your response to those words, that's what defines you. So what area has you slumping? Is it your commitment to God's house? 
Is it your relationship with God? Do you need to disconnect from some influences that are hindering your return? Do not let the slump define you. Make the choice right now. Untie from the dock. Break free from the rut. God doesn't define us by our slumps. He defines us by our response to his word when we're in one. And I want to just leave you with this. Don't let this slump define who you are. Don't let the slump define who you are. God's one choice away. Will you make it this morning? Let's stand. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.